Always great to see Steve. Well, I'm going to start actually talking a little bit about what we do. So uh, how my wife and I got into this, my wife is a professional actress, started when she was 15, both theater and film professionally. And uh, I'm a jazz musician, trained classically. I started playing orchestra pits when I was 14. So with my father, my grandfather, scholarship to Juilliard on trumpet. So I kind of grew up in that. And we went to Westmont College up in Santa Barbara, and I was playing on a really smoking jazz ensemble. We beat Stanford. We played at UC Berkeley Jazz Festival. It's a lot of fun. I was playing gigs in downtown Santa Barbara. My wife was producing Shakespeare Theater Festivals, and we just started leading artists to Christ. And uh, it's not my primary gift, but I, that's the best, leading someone to Christ. And as we did, I mean, they're coming out of New Age, Wicca, you name it, in Santa Barbara. And as they did, we started to get these artists into church, and the church really had no theology for how do we connect their passion for the arts and the gospel, besides the fact that they have three earrings and purple hair and tattoos, right? But the, and so that began this journey later in seminary. One of my mentors, Joel Hunter, said, sometimes what frustrates you with the church is indicative of your calling. And that was true for me. I saw there's beauty in the Bible. There's creativity in the Bible, and yet we're not talking this way in serious theological circles. And they began a passion. So undergrad, graduate studies, uh, this has been a primary focus. And uh, I want to say part of the reason the church doesn't get the arts deeply, and this is across Catholic Protestant uh, you know, groups. When I speak to Catholics, they resonate just the same. Um, but we don't do this because... Uh, we think of Christianity so much as things we should do or things we should know. And we don't think about the beauty God's given us. And just consider this. The Bible begins in a beautiful garden. Everything's perfect. Everything's beautiful. Everything's wonderful, right? And where does the Bible end? In a stunning city. I mean, John, he's reaching for words, right? But even the foundation, like... The part here, no one wastes any time with, be concrete, that's alabaster, sapphire, precious jewels. Imagine the rest of the city. Off the charts. And this is where we're headed, is a gorgeous, stunning, beautiful place. In the middle of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, a very somber book, the writer says, he makes all things what in its time? Beautiful. Not functional. Not just. Not practical. Beautiful. This is God's economy. He brings beauty from ashes. He gives us joy. This is who he is. And for some reason, we don't talk this way very often in church. So I want to talk to you this day about this. And uh, I'm going to talk about fragrance and the beauty of fragrance. And I'm going to do something different. Often in, in our circles, we'll go through a text verse by verse, you know, and really zeroing in, honing in. And it's kind of like, you know, Google Maps when you go all the way and you're looking at the front door and the grass. And this is what it looks like. I'm doing the opposite. We're going way up to 50,000 feet, and I want you to get the big picture over the entire Bible. All right? So I want to start. I'm going to read the key verse, and then we'll come back and go all the way through the text. Mark 14. It was now two days before Passover and the Feast on Love and Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest and kill Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, again, Jesus is hanging out with people nobody wants to hang out with because this is his love. He was reclining at a table and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. 
And in our terms today, they say it's a year's salary. So let's just say a bottle of Chanel, whatever you want to pick, $50,000 bottle. Okay? She took this, she broke this, and poured it out. Costly, she broke the flask, poured it all over his head. There's some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the entire world, she, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to portray him to them. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's fitting Stephen asked me here as it turned out uh, on Mother's Day. You know, mothers are often the ones that have a greater sense of what beauty is or women in general. You know, they're the ones, that, let's get the candles, let's get the scents, let's make everything beautiful in the house. And the best example for me is my wife. Just a couple weeks ago, my little one turned seven, Alexandria, and she is not here, but just full of life. And she wanted a mermaid party. And my wife's background in theater meant this is an all-out mermaid party. So we had a huge backdrop. Uh, she made all these shells, the pearls and the right color. I mean, just... Off the charts, right? We had a friend who works at Disney. Well, I'll get back to that. But she makes all these amazing things. And uh, we have signs. We have bubble machines. They walk in. It was just incredible. And she makes this. And some of the kids, it's nice, right? They're just, they quickly eat the cupcakes. And they play the crafts. And they're done. They get their face painted. And they're gone. And there are others that are just, you know, their jaw drops. And some of the moms. And one of the moms is a friend of ours. She works at Disney as an executive, and she said, you know, you could, you could do this for a living. And, well, and my wife said, yeah, but I don't want to do it for work. I want to do it for love. And she does it because she loves our children. And so she pours her heart out to them. And beauty is that. All of creation is beautiful. You see a sunset. It is God doing something beautiful for you as a gift. And at the same time, if you're awake, your heart is gripped and you praise the God who gave you the sunset. That is the intent of beauty all from all eternity. So this is the substance of beauties, beauty. This is a picture of the gospel and how God loves us and why he gives us beauty. So now I want to run through the entire Bible. Genesis is beautiful. But the next time we see something interesting about fragrance is Exodus 30. <clears throat> now, this is Exodus. So uh, God has just mocked and destroyed the Egyptian gods, right? Ten plagues, as if one wasn't enough, just demolishing. Like, your gods are jerks. They're stupid. They can't do anything. I can demolish all of them. Then he rescues them, takes them in the desert, and then he decides, he calls an artist Bezalel. The first person filled with the Spirit of God in the Bible is an artist. And he calls him and says, I need you to make this beautiful because that beauty points to me. But it's not just the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. It's also fragrance. Exodus 30, starting at 22. 
The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, sweet-smelling cinnamon, cane, cassia, and a hint of olive oil, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, the priests, that they may serve me as holy priests. So that's the anointing oil. There's a second fragrance is the incense for the tabernacle. A few verses later. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte, onicha, galbanum, and sweet spices with pure, pure frankincense as the major component. Put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet you. So this is the smell you smell where God meets you. It shall be most holy for you. Now, average person, you do spend a lot on perfume, but we don't talk about this very much in church. And I want to introduce you to something maybe you've heard of. It's called the Proustian Phenomenon, named after the author, Marcel Proust. <clears throat> He'd written this novel. Let me get the name right. A la recherche du temps perdu, in search of lost time. And the entire thing is a character vividly recalling long-forgotten memories from childhood. And the method to do this was tea-soaked Madeleine biscuits. And the smell would trigger their memory. And all the events and the experiences would come back and they could recall all these notes. Now, I don't know what it is for you. For me, there's a certain perfume. I still remember my grandmother who's been gone 10 years. 40 years ago, as a little six-year-old boy, I got dirty. I had to go in her bathroom to clean up. And that smell takes me back to the smell of her bathroom, the, the pastel floral tones, everything, right? There, smell has a power to take us back to times we've forgotten about. Amazing trigger. And my wife talks about this with acting. When I first talked about this, she said, well, we use this in acting. There's a famous Russian thinker that really transformed the way we act and the way actors perform in the entire industry, Stanislavski. And one of the, one of the techniques for artists, if they want to cry on cue or being whatever emotion you want to bring up is sensory perception. And one of those powerful is smell. So if you want to cry on cue or these things like my wife can, these are techniques you develop so that you can experience that immediately. And this is the power of smell. The uh, Ying Chu of the Fragrance Foundation says this, this is what makes fragrance so impactful. It can transport us to a time or place or moment more vividly than a photograph or a song. Our sense of smell is our greatest tool in evoking memory, and it is linked in our brain's center of emotional perception. So why did God, in the beginning, they're in the desert, they don't have homes, they have nothing. And he says, make a beautiful fragrance, anointing all for the priests, and a fragrance for the temple. Why? Because you're going to come here for every festival, for every sacrifice, year after year, month after month, and every time you come, I'm in the house of God. It's like going home and smelling those baked cookies your mother baked. You walk in the door, you're home. You would feel home in the house of God. It would trigger all those emotions and it was gorgeous. You had gold, you had these beautiful uh, adornments in the tabernacle later in the temple. You read Solomon's temple, off the charts, gorgeous gold. And it'll remind you that this is the character of God. God designed us this way with our senses as a trigger. And so no wonder he would design the tabernacle, this way. So, 
But he doesn't stop there. I'm going to jump all the way to the New Testament. We're skipping a lot of territory. Go to New Testament, and I want to go to Matthew 2. And this is a very familiar passage. You've all heard this at least once a year, if not more. Matthew 2, this is the three wise men or magi. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, which is in the oil, and myrrh, which is in the incense. They're anointing him. He is both the high priest and later we see he is the temple. And so here is this symbolism of him as the son of God through fragrance, through perfume. <clears throat> so God sends his son into the world and the kings bring this anointing oil of myrrh, the incense, which is frankincense, to set him apart and say, this is my son and he is the royal high priest. So now we jump to the first passage I read. And this is where it all comes together. Mark 14. I'm just going to read a little bit of that. But Christ says, she has done a beautiful thing to me, pouring out all this ointment. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, right? But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, and this is profound. If someone says the Bible doesn't value women, just tell them to read the Bible. It's not true. Jesus says, and women were not as high stature in this time, and she had done some things that would have put her lower stature. And let, as Jesus says this, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever, in all of the world, all of eternity, it will be proclaimed in the world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. A woman of low stature. And he says, no, you're the one. What you did will be remembered. And think of this. There's only 11 parts. There's only 11 stories that are in all four gospels, Right? So you've got the birth, you've got the incarnation, you've got the death on the cross. A few of the parables are told. There aren't many. This story is one in all four Gospels. So even the Gospel writers heard from Jesus, this is essential. This is a core part of the Gospel. Is this woman pouring out perfume? So what's the context? Well, it's two days before Passover. The priests are conspiring to kill Jesus. That was the first verse. That's foreshadowed. And this expensive perfume bottle is broken. The myrrh is poured out over Jesus. And imagine, you know, let's say there's uh, some young guy in the front row and he, he just first day trying cologne, he just put a little too much on, right? I mean, the first five rows, you'd all smell it, right? Now, imagine this woman with a bottle of Chanel, the whole thing. You would smell it out. People walking by would stop and start peeking in. I mean, you would, you would smell it everywhere. No wonder the men are like, lady, you're wasting this ointment. What, this stupid, what are you doing? And everyone starts correcting her and raising up. And instead of this, bringing them to their senses, they miss it. But Jesus brings them to their senses. He rebukes them, the religious and the disciples. And he speaks of benediction upon her and clarifies the woman has done the right thing. And he says, she is anointing me for my burial. Now, they didn't get it yet, right? Five days later, they go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. This was anointing him. He's about to die on the cross. They didn't get it, right? At the end of the passage, Peter's, uh, Judas is just about to go to betray him, right? But Jesus knew it's time. And somehow, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon this woman 
And she knew she was compelled to worship God with everything she had. Everything. So she went and grabbed the one thing that was most priceless to her. And she took it and she just gave it all to Christ. Poured it all over him. Nothing held back. And he says, this is a beautiful thing. And the word beauty here, in Greek, there are many words for beauty. This is not pretty. This is not sweet. This is not attractive. This is not lovely. This is not decorative. This word, this is a cologne in the Greek. The beautiful. You know the philosophers, Aristotle, Plato. The beautiful. What's the most beautiful thing that could be done? The most beautiful act. What is it, what is it that moves you the most when you read a novel or you see a movie? It's when the hero dies for someone. It's sacrifice. That's what moves us so deeply. We cry. We want to love like that. We want to love like that. All of that points to Christ. And here in this moment, her actions are pointing to Christ. He's saying what she has done is a gloriously, deeply, profoundly, spiritually beautiful thing. This ointment given to me. And so here it is with the high priests. He's saying, you're anointing me to be the high priest, the perfect sacrifice. Now, first time I had mentioned this passage, I was preaching and Joni Erickson Tata, who's a friend, was right in the front. And afterwards she came up and she said something I hadn't thought of. But think of this. If you pour, I mean, if you pour a lot of perfume on, it lasts. But a whole bottle, your whole body this smell would have stayed. He would have smelled this lovely fragrance as he was betrayed in the garden, as he was before Herod, as he was on the cross. This aroma of the sacrifice of Christ would have been unmistakable to everyone. This powerful, beautiful anointing and all from this woman who listened to Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I believe, is saying her pouring out this bottle is a picture of him. Matthew 26 says, and we will have communion. And when Jesus took the cup, and this is just a night later, right? And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, my blood poured out. Like that fragrant ointment from this woman. There's no greater love. There's no more moving story than this sacrifice of this woman. And this is not the end. I want to run all the way to the end of the Bible and show you this is throughout the entire text. The beauty is throughout the entire Bible. We've just been missing it. But in the book of Revelation, which is the the climax of what we're longing for, this hope, in Revelation 5, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp, they're worshiping, and golden bowls, gorgeous, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And there's something mysterious that, and if you go back now with this idea, you read back in all the Psalms, David and talking about the fragrance of her incense or sacrifices, that somehow in heaven, they're not separate, they're one. That our prayers are this beautiful incense to Christ, this beautiful gift to the Father as we worship him. And we see that beauty has always been the plan. He's making, his goal is to make you beautiful. He brings beauty out of ashes. This is God's economy. You look back, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. Again, he makes all things beautiful in his time. This is what it means when you become a Christian. 
And so to become more like Christ, because he poured out his life, he became the most beautiful thing in that most grotesque moment. His love of those most beautiful. And he's calling you to be made beautiful also. And as we look at heaven, we're longing for that day when we'll be made glorified, right? I mean, it's Mother's Day, and we'll talk about one of these women do, you buy makeup. Makeup, perfume to look beautiful, right? There are too many times the church, well, be careful of vanity. Don't worry. Don't be vain, right? And we've all heard that. We don't know to be vain. That's in your heart. Don't do this for identity. But we spend $55 billion a year on cosmetics in this country. That's more than the film industry, the music industry, and the video game console industry combined. Okay? Why? Why? This is a core desire if we spend that much money on it. Why? Because we're longing for heaven. We're longing for glorified bodies. That lady in the first service, she's a dermatologist. We had a great talk about this. Yes, you know, even my skin, I'm in my 40s. It's not what it was when I was in my 20s. We want perfect skin. We know that's a semblance of beauty. We're longing for heaven. And so even on Mother's Day, as you are with your mother or other women, and that beauty of them decorating and making things beautiful, that's part of the image of God in you. You know you were meant for the garden. You're longing for the new Jerusalem. And you take your time to make life beautiful for yourself and others. This is part of God's gift in you to others. And so it's not that we need to be utilitarian and and beauty, well, it's a nice last minute. No, it's not last minute. It was never last minute for God. It was essential from the beginning all the way through to the end. And this is why, it's why my wife and my kids, that's why we're in Hollywood. You know, the church hasn't understand beauty, so it's hard to engage the arts. And we're there trying a different model. How do we really help people engage the industry? Because everyone's drawn by beauty. You bought your iPhone, your iPad, where it was, because it was beautiful. It's functional, yes. But it's elegant. It's beautiful. I was talking to Ron Johnson, one of the head executives at Apple. He said, when he and Steve Jobs talked about beauty, they said, beauty, they defined, as they squeezed everything down elegantly, is love made visual. And he's a Christian. They get it. Love is made visual. And so beauty, if we understand it right, will take us to the throne of Christ. It's what we long for, what we long to be, what we long to be around. God did not draw us to himself through giving us rules. He does not draw us to himself through certain behaviors that we must acquire. He drew us to himself by his love and his beauty. You're moved by his love for you. And I I do want to give you an opportunity, if you want to know more about what we're doing in Hollywood, how we have an institute, there's a paper out back. Uh, We train people for three days. How do you really live and make a difference and be faithful in the industry? So you can have a body of work for 20, 30 years and didn't sell your soul just trying to stay in the city. And how do you elevate the beauty of Christ and resist all the other temptations to glorify And if you want to know more about our ministry, uh, there's a number you can text on there. You can see that. But text AEM2018, and that's the 22828, and that'll just sign you up. But if you want to know more about this and beauty, and then my book on beauty as I finish it, uh, it'd be great to share that with you. So my last point, I want to encourage you today to just stop. Take time. You know, 
We're so busy doing so many things and then checking social media. We want to be efficient with our time. We don't waste our time for God. We want to be productive. And there's a time where you need to shut down and just savor beauty. Because it's a picture of heaven. And you weren't meant to go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. That's why we have a Sabbath. God designed that as a gift for us. There's a time to sit and just savor life. Celebrate the mothers around you, your mother, whoever, the women that bring beauty in your life. But take time and savor. It's like the flowers you, you take as you leave. They're beautiful. They smell great. Is it functional? Actually, yes, they're functional. If you want to talk to a, a, a horticulturist, yes. But is that the point? No. <laughs> Their point is beauty. Even Christ is compared to the lilies of the valley, right? Beauty is to be savored. And God made us to savor that and then to look at that and say, that's how he's making my heart. This is what he wants to do to my soul. To be a blessing to others and to become more like him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us, not because we're so good, so talented, so beautiful. You just love us because we're yours. Help us to see that beauty that is used for so many trivial things in our country, in our culture, to redeem that and see that it really points to you, to celebrate the sunset, to celebrate the flowers and the beauty of how we adorn our houses, all these things, Lord, and to savor that and see it, it is a picture of our longing to be in your presence where one day we will be surrounded by golden streets, beautiful trees, beautiful buildings, and we will gaze upon the beautiful one, Christ himself.